Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I apologize for the long stretch in between episodes. I've been struggling a little bit with my usual summer chest congestion and haven't been able to uh, do these and feel confident in without uh, my voice being too bad. Uh, it's a little better today so I wanted to try to push through and do a uh, new podcast. I wanted to today move into the realm of uh, literature and music. Uh, but we're still going to be talking about it sort of through the lens of uh, philosophy, politics, and culture. Uh, because these things can't be completely uh, taken apart. They can't be separated. Um, these things always have connections uh, in, in ways that most people don't even think about. Uh, when you think of the arts, the arts basically break into the music books, oral traditions, dances, paintings, sculptures, um, you know, lots of different kinds of arts. Uh, and within those kinds of arts, they're usually broken into two classifications, the high arts and what are um, often derogatorily referred to as the low arts. Uh, the high arts are the ones that generally have um, the upper class audience in mind, and they also generally have the official sanction of uh, the powers in charge, um, whether that's political power, religious power, or a combination of the two, or in later times, uh, economic power. But the high arts always have um, that sort of go-ahead, and so therefore they are pushed forth as being the important arts. They're often seen as the ones that are only... Uh, what is given for the representative of a time period. So when you look at the uh, time period of Shakespeare, time period of the Renaissance, you're going to find more of the um, more literary, uh, in an academic sense, writers, people who were more uh, mainstream uh, popularity, and back then mainstream popularity uh, required official sanction. <clears throat> if you did not have that you wouldn't be able to put your things out, at least not to a large audience. The low arts often were in forms of things like folk music. You know, every single culture, uh, even cultures without writing, uh, who haven't developed writing, have folk music. So folk music goes back into the earliest times of all cultures. You know, you have Chinese folk music, you have African folk music, you have, you know... Uh, <clears throat> folk music of the indigenous Americans, of the Europeans, of, um, you know, people all over the world have folk music. Um, and this is because these are the songs of the people. These are songs about everyday life. And these are often dismissed as low art. You know, these aren't seen as things that are sophisticated. And so they often get pushed out of the realm of study. And they often even get forgotten because a lot of times these things are not written down. They're transmitted orally from generation to generation. So when you go into, let's say, an official library and look for these works, a lot of times you're not going to find them because they haven't been put there. Uh, so there's been a lot of dismissiveness with the lower arts and a lot of ignoring of them. Now in the 20th century and 21st century, there have been some movements to try to reverse this a little bit, to try to 
get into some of these traditions and see what they have to offer. And what you generally find is they offer a very different picture of life from what you get from the high arts. <clears throat> the high arts uh, generally considered with, are generally uh, concerned with, I should say, the lives of the upper class, the lives of kings, queens, wealthy merchants, uh, adventurers. You know, they're, they're generally in line with those class, that class of people. But most people didn't live in that class. That doesn't represent the way most of the population of the world lives. You know, you can turn on the television today and watch, you know, uh, wealthy people sailing around in their yachts and living in their mansions and having lavish parties and get the sense that lots of people live this way. Well, lots of people don't live this way. Most of the people in on the planet live at nowhere near that level. You know, you're you're getting a glimpse into the one percent of the population, and many times the point one percent of the population. So this is not the lives of most people. And when you look at these lives and these stories about these people, whether they're written stories in the older days or music or um, <clears throat> things like that or plays or you look at them on you know more modern media today um, television movies uh, songs things like that you're getting an unrealistic representation of the lives of people and for most people that gives them a sense that their life has no value you know I don't have my own yacht I don't have thousands of people shouting my name therefore I'm not a person of value. And this is one of the things that really, the reason that these are pushed is to kind of reinforce that hierarchy, to kind of get out to everyone that unless you're in this very top of the pyramid, your experiences, your ideas, your thoughts aren't really significant. You don't matter. Uh, you can only matter if you get yourselves into that uh, upper class, into that upper part. This is a large reason for the push for people to try to become wealthy and famous because we have a really big undercurrent in the modern world that you're either wealthy or famous or you're nothing. Um, so I'm going to focus more on the low arts and talk a little bit more about those. And in particular, I'm going to, for this episode, kind of move more towards music. Um, as I said towards the beginning of the podcast, uh, folk music is really something that starts very early on. Um, pre Prehistoric times, we have folk music. Um, people were singing songs way before they ever thought about writing anything down, way before they even thought about building cities. You know, people had songs. Um, they would be songs that would convey bloodlines. They would be songs that would convey religion. Uh, they would be songs that would convey just day-to-day -day struggles of people. Um, and there's a very rich tradition all over the world of this. And even though the high arts and the academic world has sort of uh, ignored these things, uh, it's still there. And a large part of the reason that these things have been ignored is they often tend to be very subversive. Uh, they tend to preach the opposite values of what the mainstream wants to preach. You know, they don't preach the value that you're either famous or you're nothing. They don't preach the value that 
the, you know, the good life can only be had with piles of gold. Uh, in fact, a lot of the folk music is about struggles against that. And this is why a lot of it gets pushed out of the mainstream. <clears throat> now, as you move into the 20th century, uh, especially in the United States, you have a tradition of folk music that starts to get popular and then it starts to get suppressed and for different reasons. One of the early reasons was that a lot of the folk music tended to be uh, in favor of the unions, in favor of workers organizing. You had a lot of union songs and union music and this was seen as being subversive to uh, the people who owned everything. And so this, this kind of music was never broadcast very much on the radio. When it starts to be put on the radio, there starts to be a backlash. Uh, part of the reason for this is it starts to be broadcast on the radio and become more widely known post-World War II um, and during and after World War II. And a lot of the messages seem to be messages that are not pro-capitalism. In fact, they're pro-workers' rights, they're pro-union, uh, uh, and so they get demonized as being uh, communist. There were many singers, folk singers in particular, uh, who were blacklisted. Um, Pete Seeger is one, for instance. Uh, major record labels weren't allowed to record him. He wasn't allowed to be played most of his songs on the radio. Definitely wasn't allowed to be on play a lot of his music on television. It isn't until you get into the 60s and you start to get a little bit of him on television. But a lot of his uh, performances he had to do and, and chose to do, preferred to do, uh, at union halls, out in front of crowds, um, you know, at civil rights uh, marches, uh, women's, women's rights marches. He, he used his music to uplift a lot of the groups that were kind of pushed out of the mainstream, that were used... That, that were used to being ignored. You know, when you hear about the 20s, you hear about the roaring 20s and the excesses of the rich. Uh, the folk singers at the time were talking about uh, the, the tribulations of the poor and all of the things that they had to go through. <clears throat> now, in the 60s, you start to get a little bit of a breaking out of that. You get a lot of the uh, so-called hippies and the folk hippie music and the uh, political protest music that's both folk and rock and uh, R&B. And these musics are somewhat mainstream for a while. They're kind of mainstream against the will of the mainstream. Uh, the mainstream didn't want to play them, but they made so much money that that overrode their desire to not play these things. Um, you know, if your choice for the wealthy was to not... Uh, put out The Doors music or Janis Joplin or Bob Dylan and lose out on all the money or make all the money from the record sales, they were going to put the music out. Um, but they generally tried to find ways to make sure that only certain songs would hit the radio and get a lot of play. The ones that were too objectionable were kept out of, uh, were kept out of the mainstream. Uh, people would get them because they would buy the albums and those songs would be on the albums, uh, but they would try to control what went on the radio. Uh, the FCC would often 
um, fine radio stations and television stations for playing songs they found objectionable. As you move through the 60s into the 70s, music becomes more and more commercialized. And as you get out of the Vietnam War, there's really a push to drive all of the subversive music out of the mainstream. So you get a lot of uh, wealthy people putting money behind uh, different types of music that don't put out objectionable lyrics. Um, disco takes off um, and becomes extremely popular. Uh, rock and roll takes off, but a different kind of rock and roll. A rock and roll that's more about um, partying and having a good time. You know, these are things that are not going to be things you do that are going to challenge the wealthy and their position. These are going to be distractions. And so distractions are seen as good. Any music that distracts the public from being out in the street and marching is going to be music that's going to be put forward. Any music that is too political, they're not going to get a record label. They're not going to get mainstream radio play. Um, the people will still hear them as they always have. And this is, you know, one of the things about the so-called low arts is that no matter how much those in power have always tried to suppress them, somehow the people still manage to know these things. Uh, one example is Woody Guthrie's song, This Land is Your Land. Um, <clears throat> this song is known by most children and was known by most children uh, you know, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, and yet Woody Guthrie had no radio play. You know, these songs were learned by children, were learned by uh, the regular people, and were kept alive that way. And the main thing that, the main reason for that is if you compare something like This Land is Your Land, as opposed to The Star-Spangled Banner, you see a very different message. Uh, both of them are very patriotic songs. Both of them are very, uh, you know, very much about be uh, have, having a great love for the country but look at how they differ in their message you know the star-spangled banner is basically about war and it's about triumphing in in warfare and overcoming the enemy and still standing whereas this land is your land when you look at the lyrics of that this is much more about this belongs to all of us and we need to share it uh, this is definitely not a pro-capitalism message uh, this is definitely a message that the capitalist would like to say, yes, this is just, you know, commie whining, commie BS, uh, and leave it at that. And this is part of the reason that it doesn't get uh, the mainstream airplay. And yet it still becomes very popular because the people still have access to these songs. Now, as you move into the 80s and 90s and beyond the record companies start to get more and more control over what's over the airwaves. And you get a lot of music that comes out that is considered safe. And by safe, that doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, puritanical music that doesn't have any uh, obscenity in it. Um, those songs can still be safe. You know, the safe topics you can sing about are love in a, you know, one-on-one -on -one sense, love. Um, you can sing about sex, you can sing about uh, drugs, you can sing about excess. 
um, because these aren't things that would get people to get together and form a, a movement uh, that would go for political change. These are things that keep you distracted, keep you having a good time and not paying attention to what's going on. Uh, occasionally you get songs that are more about political topics and there are a few bands and this kind of pops up now and then but it usually doesn't get to stay in the mainstream very long. It gets pushed out fairly quickly. Uh, you have some you know, songs that are for uh, uh, charitable events, you know, things like We Are the World, uh, you know, USA for Africa, Farm Aid, um, and, and you still have some musicians that are putting out uh, those folk type music uh, um, traditions, those, that music of rebelling against the power and of uh, getting the people to work together to make something better. A lot of times, though, even when you have these people that are writing these songs, those are not the songs that they're that are going to get radio play. Um, Bruce Springsteen, for example, has a lot of um, songs about the troubles of the working class. But when you hear what they put on the on the radio, those tend to be more his uh, songs that deal with that, but deal with more of the issues of love. So they kind of still give him that audience, but yet try to keep the audience limited to what they're going to hear, uh, to these safer topics. Um, when you move into uh, the 90s, you kind of get a lot of uh, sort of a return to this rebellious music, but it's more individual rebellion. It's not, we should get together and do this. Uh, it's, it's more about, uh, you know, the heck with society, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to party, I'm going to... Uh, reject all of these values, but they're rejected in isolation, in solitude. There's a sense that, you know, you should reject these things, but then you're an outcast and you're going to be alone. And there's also this trend in a lot of the music then that the idea of if you become popular, you must not be uh, truly one of the uh, believers of the cause. You're not one of the good guys. Um, there's a lot of the musicians who in the particular the alternative uh, music who felt when they became successful that it was an absolute sellout to everything they believed in. They believed they had given up all of their um, all of their credibility and now they were just one more commercial act. Um, and as you know, we've moved into the 2000s and beyond, it really has gotten whittled down um, because the, the control over who gets recorded is more and more. Now, people can record on uh, platforms like this or platforms like YouTube, uh, but it's very hit or miss of whether they'll be heard. Uh, they may get lucky and be heard and have a lot of hits, but they're drowned out in a sea of um, of, of the accepted music. Uh, you know, anything that focuses just on love or money or me getting what I can for myself or me being sad, those are the things that you're going to hear more of. Those are going to be the things that are going to be pushed the most. You're going to see them on television more. Uh, you're going to hear them on the radio more. And so the, uh, 
way of pushing them out as times have gone on is just to put your money behind um, different types of musicians. Musicians who are more willing to make that hit song. And a lot of the drive for a lot of musicians, uh, especially in pop music, is to get that hit song, to be famous, uh, to have everyone singing your song and knowing who you are. Um, the drive is not to uh, necessarily have any kind of political or social motivation. Again, those artists are out there, you just don't get them as much. So when you look at uh, control in the modern world of, of these the high and low art, uh, you'll see that a lot of the control has moved down to trying to control what is considered the low art. And the control isn't necessarily straightforward censorship. It's putting the money and putting the uh, push behind the things that are not offensive, as far as offensive to the people in power, the power structures the way they are. Okay, I'm going to wrap this episode up. Uh, as I said before, I try to keep my episodes fairly short. Um, I hope you are all doing well. I hope you are all staying safe, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.